to serious Christians and experienced churchmen, there are a few words of Scripture more familiar to us than these found in Matthew 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, he blessed it and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And after they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The year was 1984, and the building committee elected by this congregation began the design phase of its work. Many of you remember that that committee was chaired by Dick Heitman, and those of you who had anything to do with its work will recall the marvelous job that he did balancing competing ideas and very strong personalities. At that time, behind us were the wrenching decisions related to leaving the denomination this church had been a part of from the beginning. Behind us were the court decisions at the local and appellate levels that awarded all of the church's earthly goods to that body. Behind us were the enormous costs of those decisions. Behind us were the consolidation of the congregation in our temporary worship quarters at Kersley High School and the purchase of this 15-acre site. Behind us were the visits to a number of churches to take the measure of the work done by architects the committee was deciding. And then finally, the decision to employ the firm of Holland Stevens of Swartz Creek. And now, having devoted much thought and prayer to its work and having visited several churches to learn from the experiences of others, the committee began finally to put lines on paper. There were several things that were decided very early in the design phase for the new building. From a frustrating experience with our former place of worship, the committee agreed that this church would have no flat roofs. And for similar reasons, the committee insisted that there would be no basement to leak and to mildew, as we had known before. And because fellowship is important to us, and because in our old church, there was no place to stand before worship or after worship without being in someone else's way, it was decided that the hallways in the building and the aisles in the sanctuary would be wide enough to allow pleasant and unhurried conversation. And because the theology and values of this church are traditional, we wanted a church that looked like a church, one that would be a testimony to the community of our heritage and our faith. And in the sanctuary itself, the committee opted for what is called a fan seating arrangement. There were more than one reason for this. One of was the ability to accommodate a greater number of people in about the same space and keep everyone close enough to the front as to feel engaged in worship rather than a spectator to it. And the other reason was that when the pews are angled, every person in those pews is visually aware of more people sitting around him in worship. We do not come to worship as spectators. We come to participate. 
And the thought was that a fan arrangement would sentence, heighten this sense of community among us on Sunday morning. And as far as the windows in the sanctuary were concerned, there was never any discussion of having in them just plain glass or unadorned opaque glass. We all agreed that colored windows added warmth to the sanctuary and that their symbols, at least so far as those symbols are understood, remind worshipers of key elements of our faith and encourage that sense of contemplation that is the beginning of worship. The choices of themes and symbols were far greater than the number of windows, which means that priorities had to be established. After much discussion and a number of revisions by the artist, the present arrangement was settled on. Early on, many of us in this congregation were aware of the meaning of the symbols and the reason for their selection. But with the passage of time and inevitable changes in the congregation, that awareness among us has eroded. And from time to time, it's been suggested that it might be both interesting and helpful for a series of sermons to be preached on the windows and the themes of the symbols in the windows. And that suggestion is the genesis for a series that begins today that I'm calling Windows 1986. Windows, because it's about the windows. In 1986, because that was the year the building was opened and these windows first added their beauty to our worship. This morning, I'd like to call your attention to the central window on this side. It's replicated in the insert in your bulletin, which has been beautifully done by our office staff. In this window are two symbols that represent the two sacraments of the Church of Jesus Christ. On the bottom, you'll notice there's a basin of water being poured out before the cross. This represents baptism and its importance in the life of the Church. Christian baptism is a ceremony that traces its roots to the command of Jesus Christ himself. As the nation of Israel was fading from its role at the center of God's plan for sacred history, and the church of Jesus Christ was poised to take its place, the Lord met with those men that he had personally trained for positions of leadership in the church, and he gave them their final instructions. He said, as you go forth into the world... Make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you, and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that the apostles understood that by these words Jesus was saying that baptism was mandatory, as suggested in the second chapter of Acts, where the first Christian converts were required to be baptized. The waters of baptism have no magical powers. No person is saved by being baptized. No person is condemned simply because he was not baptized. But the sacrament has great symbolic meaning to us. For a person of age, of maturity, to be baptized is a testimony that that person understands and accepts the essential claims of the gospel. That he is a sinner alienated by his own sin from God that Jesus died to bear the penalty that his sins require, and that he has pledged his allegiance to Christ as Savior and yielded his life to Christ as Lord. When a child is baptized, the faith being professed is that of at least one of the parents. 
It's a commitment on their part to raise their child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and in the fellowship of the church. In either case, baptism represents the commitment of a person to the church and the commitment of the church to that person. On the top of that same window, we see a clump of grapes and stalks of grain. When processed, the one becomes wine and the other bread. These, of course, are the elements of the sacrament of communion or the Lord's Supper, which was instituted by the Lord himself on the last night of his life among us in the flesh. The next day he would suffer and die for us and our salvation. The cross was very much on his mind as he sat with his closest friends for what would prove to be their last supper together. From the table that evening, Jesus took a piece of bread, held it in his hand until every eye was fixed on him and every tongue had fallen silent. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And later, in a similar manner, he lifted a cup and he declared, this is my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And then making it clear that what he had not done was a one-time only occasion, but rather the beginning of a ceremony that was to be repeated in the worshiping life of his church, he said to them, do this in remembrance of me. Thus, is it is in obedience to the one we call Lord that we apply water when there is new life and gather on occasions like this to remember his death. I'd like to call your attention to the words of Christ, do this in remembrance of me. And call your attention to the fact that there are very important things that we learn from the verb that Jesus used on that occasion. First of all, we notice that it is a plural, not a singular. This instruction was not addressed to individuals, but rather to groups of believers. And in the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul refers to times when Christian congregations came together specifically to remember the Lord's death. This is not something that we do by ourselves. This is not something that we do as couples or families in our homes. It is intended by Christ to be a part of the worship of the gathered church. And knowing this, places in serious question the practice of some to take the elements of the Lord's Supper out of its intended setting and to those who are not present when the church gathered for worship. Taking communion to shut-ins seems contrary to everything that we know about the Lord's Supper from Scripture, particularly the apparent meaning of these words of our Lord. And it makes something out of the elements of the Lord's Supper that they are not intended to be. A second thing that we notice about the form of this verb in the words, do this in remembrance of me, is that they are imperative. This means that these words are not merely wise counsel for Christian believers or a helpful suggestion to the church, but rather they constitute an order or a command from the Lord himself. In effect, the Lord is saying, it is imperative that you do this. 
The fact that these words are expressed as an imperative has implications. For those of us who are more or less active in the life of Christ's church, it means that we should make every effort to be present on those occasions when the church gathers to do what Jesus said we must do. This is the reason that several years ago we started printing in the bulletin the date of the next communion service in the church. You know I trust that as Christians we ought to be in worship every Lord's Day. But for some of us, declining health and energy makes that very difficult. But we ought to make every effort to be present on these occasions when we gather to use this bread and use this cup as Jesus instructed us to do. The imperative nature of these words also has implications for those who seem fond of saying, I can be a good Christian and not go to church. Jesus once asked, why do you call me Lord and not do the things that I say? Jesus' instruction, do this in remembrance of me, means that I can't call myself a good Christian and deliberately absent myself from those times and places where the faithful gather obediently to remember the Lord's death in this particular way. As students of our faith, we have to wonder why Jesus used such strong language when he established the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Why did he say, you must do this? And this question becomes, what facts of history might otherwise escape our scrutiny? What articles of the Christian faith might we otherwise neglect? And what is there about ourselves that we might otherwise deliberately forget if Jesus did not from time to time take us by the hand, forcefully bring us to times like this and say to us, do this in remembrance of me. I'd like to examine this question with you. The setting in which these words were spoken suggests that uppermost in our contemplations in times like this should be Christ's death. And Paul says specifically that when we come together on Communion Sundays, it is to remember the Lord's death. When we think about Jesus' death, it's inevitable that we should not consider the enormity of his suffering. His suffering was physical, his suffering was emotional, his suffering was spiritual, and all of it was made even worse by the injustice of it all. It's common to hear people whose hair has turned white to say something to one another about God's plan for their future and particularly for the end of our days. When we think about it, it's even a little bit funny that one person should say to another, as if it's a brand new discovery and a thought unique to him, I don't know about you, but I hope that I die peacefully in my sleep as if there are people longing to die in some other way than that. But that is our fondest hope. That is our prayer. But some of us are likely to face last days marked by handicap and indignity and pain. A time made worse by the fact that as our bodies deteriorate, our minds remain alert. But if God, 
in his perfect wisdom and for his own reasons, plans for us to suffer horribly in death, none of us would be able to say, I don't deserve this. But Jesus could. He was holy in his thoughts. He was innocent in his life. He broke no law of God, and the only human statutes that he violated were the ungodly rules of ungodly men. There was a time when Jesus asked the crowd who opposed him, which of you convicts me of sin? And the mob fell silent. And the author of Hebrews said of Jesus that he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sinning. Jesus had done nothing worthy of death, especially the horrible death of the cross. And the injustices heaped upon him as he suffered took several forms. There was that of the militant hatred of men who considered themselves righteous but felt threatened by his presence. There was the indifference of his Roman executioners who cast lots for his clothing as he suffered nearby. And there was the cowardice of those who called themselves his disciples, but who were so afraid for their own welfare that they fled from him in the hour that he most needed them. Trained by centuries of Christian thought, we wonder who could be so blind, so hard, so uncaring as to treat Jesus as these men did, and then we remember being trained by centuries of Christian thought that human nature hasn't really changed in 2,000 years. As we hold these simple elements in our hand, we reflect on the Lord's death and consider the incredible dimensions of the injustices that were inflicted on him. And then we recall those times when we've been ashamed to identify with him when we've been indifferent to his will and glory, the hours and days that pass without prayer, without Christian thought. And then we understand how Isaiah, who lived 800 years before Jesus suffered, could number himself along with those who inflicted that suffering. Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. The Apostle John said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here, at this table, in this place, the light shining through that window, our consciences come alive. Here with David, we confess to the Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned. Here with the spiritual heroes of one of Jesus' parables, we cry out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And here, like a healing balm applied to a wound, we find the great relief and the joy of the touch of Christ's great mercy. It was not to the proud, but it was to the penitent 
that Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Here, like the prodigal returning from his rebellion, amazed by the love and graciousness of his father, we find ourselves again surprised and gladdened by these reminders of the undeserved but faithful love of our God. Here we kneel in contrition. Here he takes us by the hand and causes us to stand. Here, like Adam and Eve in the garden, we find ourselves embarrassed by our spiritual nakedness. Here, like Adam and Eve in the garden, he drapes us in the gleaming white robes of redemption. And here, reflecting on the reality of the grace and the incalculable cost of our salvation, we reflect on the enormity of the debt that we now owe. Our president trivializes and besmirches certain words of Christ when he makes them the imagined basis for tax policy. It wasn't with government revenues in mind, but the obligations of joyful Christian service that Jesus said, everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. Again, Micah's question forces itself upon us. What does the Lord your God require of you? The cost of our redemption was great and freely paid. Now, what measure of eager devotion does our Redeemer rightfully expect from us? This is one of many questions that ought to be on our minds as we sit quietly in his presence. Every Sunday morning, the light of the sun created by God shines through these windows made by man. Every Sunday, that light warms our place of worship and brightens and calls our attention to these symbols of things that we value as Christians. On this Communion Sunday, we have gathered in obedience to the one who commands us to do this in remembrance of me. We who came hungering and thirsting after righteousness have been satisfied. We who came prepared to be honest with God about our sins have found mercy. We who came in the spirit of worship will soon depart with songs of praise in our hearts. As we once again take leave of one another in this place made sacred by our praise and by the presence of our Savior, as we return to the gathering darkness of the age in which we live, may the light that is in Christ be so purely diffused in our character and lives that others might see the goodness that is in us and give glory to the one who is its source. Let us pray. Our Father, we are here because your Son, Jesus, bids us come. Here, we understand on the table, blessings are piled higher than we can see. Blessings of grace and mercy and truth and love. Oh, God, we pray that our hearts and minds might be hungry in order that we might leave satisfied and rejoicing. In Jesus' name, amen.